All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Before we begin our study of the Word this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer and ask His guidance on our study. Our Father, we're thankful for this time that we have to study Your Word, to reflect upon what You have revealed to us, and especially today as we look into what happened at the cross with the death of our Lord. As we looked at His spiritual substitutionary death last time, today we look at the death itself and its significance, its implications, and what it means to us. Father, we thank you for the fact that we have the Scripture, the whole of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation to teach us about the prophecies, the types, the foreshadowing, the announcements of a coming Savior, and to see its precise fulfillment in the New Testament. And we pray that our faith might be strengthened and encouraged as we study these things. In Christ's name, amen. This morning we're looking at the significance of Christ's death, prophecy fulfilled. This is only the beginning. It's not an in-depth study. I want to hit it in more of a survey fashion to help us uh, understand what has transpired here as we look at the cross on Golgotha. Since we got into the period of Christ's first his arrest and then the six trials, at the end of the six trials, I began to take us through a step-by-step of all of the things that happened between the uh, taking of Jesus from uh, Pilate's presence to Golgotha, step-by-step, putting together all of the gospel accounts so that we can have a full picture of what uh, transpired. We looked at the first five stages, and that covered the procession to Golgotha as Jesus was led away carrying his cross. Following that, we looked at the first three hours on the cross where the wrath of man was directed toward Jesus as he was reviled, ridiculed, mocked, by those who went by. Then last time we looked at the second three hours, which is the time when the sin payment is made. Again and again in Scripture, there is a depiction of sin as a debt, and that that debt has been paid. The implications of that we'll probably get into more next time. That is not, in my opinion, probed enough today. The debt has been paid. It's been canceled. The word for cancellation has to do with forgiveness, same word. It was an economic term. 
And it meant that at the cross a financial type transaction took place that canceled the debt. That's what Colossians 2, 12 through 14 tells us. It canceled the debt. There was forgiveness of the debt, a real forgiveness for all, which lays the foundation for our salvation, that it is not that that sin is forgiven, although it is in a second type of forgiveness at the time that we trust Christ as Savior, but there is a genuine cancellation of the sin penalty at the cross so that Jesus said it is finished. Again, a term that was used in financial transactions to state that the debt or the payment was made in full. It was completed. Nothing could be added to it. That doesn't mean that people are automatically saved. It means that the sin problem has been truly dealt with for everyone. And so the issue in salvation is not sin. It's Christ. It's who he is and what he did for us. We studied that last time that that payment was made during those three hours of darkness when God the Father judicially imputed to Christ the sins of the world. As we came to the end, we saw that this is emphasized most by the uh, Gospel of John. John states in uh, John uh, 19.30, the state, statement Jesus made on the cross, it is finished. But prior to that, in John 19:28, John said, after this, that is, after he had completed the payment for sin, Jesus, and that would be, should be translated as a causal participle, because he knew that all things were now accomplished. That's the same phrase in the Greeks, the same identical term, It's a perfect participle, which means it's completed action. It is done at that point. It's not still going on. It is completed and finished at this point. So John, John 19, 28 says, Jesus, because he knew that all things were completely finished, he's silent, remember? Like we just read in Isaiah 53, like the lamb before his shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He didn't open his mouth until it was finished. Once it was finished, then he said, I thirst. So the emphasis there is on that completed payment that we can't add to, we can't take away from it. It's done, and it provides forgiveness. It cancels the debt of sin. Then we come to the 24th stage. The 24th stage is when Jesus dies physically. In the 24th stage, he makes his seventh statement from the cross, and that's given to us in Luke 23, verse 46. There we read, And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. This is his final statement. Luke emphasizes that he does this with a loud voice. He screams out 
with this loud voice. And when it says he cried out and he said, they're not, they're probably not two different things. This is more of a Hebrew idiom that this is what he said when he cried out. This is the content of this cry. Uh, and in the Greek it says he cried out with a loud voice. He is screaming this out, uh, shouting it out. And he says, my father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, what does that mean? Some translations use the word commend. Other translations use the word commit. And so we have to look at the word that is used here in the Greek. It's paratithemi which has the idea of depositing something. So if you were to go to the bank because you trust the institution to take care of your money, you deposit your money into an account at the bank. You entrust it to them. That's the idea there. And so he is committing himself, the God-man, his immaterial spirit, to God. He says, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is... Again, a fulfillment of, of a messianic psalm. The verse is Psalm 31.5, and he is reciting that into your hand, I commit my spirit, indicating that is a, a prophecy that is, that is fulfilled ultimately in the Messiah. And it's a Hebrew word that is in the hifil stem. Now, none of you know Hebrew. One or two may have heard a little bit here or there, but Hebrew is kind of different from from Indo-European languages. It has these different stems for verbs. And so you can have a verb, and it can be in what they call the cal or the nifal or the piel, pu'al, hifil. The hifil stem is causative. So he's indicating that he's causing this to happen because it's finished. Again, we see that he is in control. Throughout this whole process, man in his rebellion against God hates God and is, and in the, uh, th- through the instrumentality of the religious leaders of Israel, through the instrumentality of the, uh, soldiers of Rome and the governor, they are, uh, seeking to kill him. And they're torturing him, and they have beaten him, and they've flogged him. They've ridiculed, and they've mocked him, and they've spit upon him. But he's the one who's in control. And there's a great lesson for us in this, is that when we live in the devil's world, when we live in a sinful, chaotic world, God is still in control. It may not appear as such to us, but he's in control, and so we are to relax and trust him and to continue the mission that God has given us in the spiritual life, which is to continue to grow and mature, to fulfill all of the different uh, mandates that are given us in Scripture in terms of our spiritual growth and our ministry and our service to the body of Christ and all the different one another uh, admonitions that we are given to pray for one another, to encourage one another, to love one another. Uh, all of these things we continue to do, not being distracted by the chaos going on around us, but to focus on the mission God has given us also in terms of being a living witness to our life as well as a witness 
through our lips and talking to people and telling them the gospel. All of that is part of it. We don't get distracted. God is in control. We trust him and we move forward with the mission that God has given us. Jesus has completed the mission. That's why he said it's finished, paid in full. And so now that it has done, he lowers his head and his last cry out, I commit my spirit, I entrust it. The Hebrew word has the same idea, uh, a point, it has a number of different meanings, but that word, a point, has the, is similar to it, I am setting this, committing it to you, uh, giving this over and trusting it to you. Uh, you have redeemed me, or, uh, O Lord, God has truth. And there the word redeem has to do with the fact that God is rescuing him from this payment of sin, from this life, and God is going to uh, be taking him to himself at the time of physical death. He says he commits his spirit in all, in the, in the gospel accounts, that emphasize this aspect, they use the term pneuma here in Luke 23:46, and also in Matthew 27:50. Spirit here, I believe firmly in a view that the hum- a human being is composed of three parts that's called te- technically called trichotomy, has a physical body, he has a soul, and he has a human spirit. When we're born spiritually dead, we're not born with a human spirit. But when we trust in Christ, we are regenerated, born again. We receive this human spirit. It's an aspect of our immaterial makeup that allows us to have a relationship with God. But these terms, pneuma for spirit and uh, suke for soul, are not always used in a technical sense. Sometimes suke simply means life, and it refers to anyone. And sometimes it is just talking about the immaterial part of man and emphasizing that soul. Sometimes pneuma is a term that doesn't just describe the human spirit, but describes just the immaterial part of man. And so I believe that is what is saying here. It was idiomatic. You can go back and find various passages related to this in the Old Testament where spirit is used or the, the <clears throat> God taking a spirit is used as an idiom for death. So that is what Jesus is saying here. He is dying physically and his immaterial being, his soul and spirit, will be separated from his physical body and go into the presence of God as his body will be taken from the cross and then uh, and then buried. Matthew, Matthew 27:50 tells us doesn't say what Jesus cried out, simply says Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit when he, Matthew uses the word yielded. He uses the verb afiemi, which is usually translated to cancel or to forgive. But the root meaning of both of those ideas is to let something go, to release it. And so he's using this word in that sense that Jesus is releasing his spirit. The time is done. Jesus has completed the mission, and so he, in an 
final act showing that he is in control, he picks the exact time when he dies physically. And so his spirit goes to be with the Lord. John, in his... uh, in his gospel, John 19.30 says, So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said it is finished, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Again, using that same word. So you don't have a word suke for in any of the passages. It just talks about his spirit, the immaterial part of his being. So that brings us to the physical death of Christ on the cross. And what I want to do is pause here before we go further in what transpires in terms of uh, what happened, what is said after his death by the Roman centurion, what happens in terms of his body being pierced by the spear, uh, taken down, prepared for burial, all of those things, and take a pause as we think about what has happened and why it has happened. We've looked at the historical record, but Jesus came into this earth. He entered into the human body that came through natural, or excuse me, through miraculous means through a virgin birth, and that his uh his soul and spirit entered into that human body in order to go to the cross and to die. Why did he do that? What is the significance of that spiritual and physical death of Christ? And so to begin that, I want to look at the Old Testament preparation We're not going to make this an exhaustive study, but just to be reminded, I think every one of us needs to have under our control three, four, five different solid prophecies from the Old Testament that we can go to and use at times when we are witnessing or talking to somebody about the Lord Jesus Christ. We have near prophecies. By near prophecies, I mean that Jesus demonstrated that he was a prophet in fulfillment of the prophecy of Moses in Deuteronomy, that there would be a prophet like him that would come. That is fulfilled in Jesus. And three times he made prophecies in the synoptic gospels related to his death in Jerusalem. We've studied through each of these in Matthew chapter Uh, 16, verse 28, we read, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man uh, coming in his uh, kingdom. So he is prophesying the fact that the Son of Man would be coming and that there would be those who would live to see that. That was fulfilled. I think I got the wrong reference up there um, when I typed it in, probably mistyped it and got the wrong verse. But earlier in Matthew 16, he does predict that he will go to Jerusalem where the Son of Man would be betrayed and would be crucified by the religious leaders. Then in Matthew 17:22, we read, Now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of man. Actually, that should have been Matthew 16:21 instead of 16:28 as I look at my notes. So let me read that to you. Matthew 
21. Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. That's the correct reference. So that is one of his first predictions to his disciples of what would happen. Then in Matthew 17, 22, he repeats that again. He says, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men in 17:22 and in 23 he goes on to say and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day and they were deeply grieved they still didn't grasp it though but they understand that he is making this prediction of his death and then we come to Matthew 20:17 through 19 now Jesus going up to Jerusalem took the 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. Now, we have seen this in our study as we have progressed through Matthew, that each of these predictions is, comes true demonstrating that Jesus is a true prophet and that he accurately predicted his death and what exactly would happen as well as his resurrection. Now, when we look at the Gospel of John, John is very different from the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I want to look at three specific prophecies or types that are alluded to in the Gospel of John. And the first one is in John chapter 1, verse 29. This occurred as Jesus is inaugurating his earthly ministry. Before this, he has uh, not been known. He has been living in obscurity in Nazareth. And so now at this point, after John the Baptist has been announcing the coming kingdom and to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus comes to John, who is his cousin, to be uh, baptized. This will inaugurate his earthly ministry. And when John saw him coming down to the Jordan, he announced, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, what exactly does he mean by this when he announces the Lamb of God? For there are various sacrifices in the Old Testament. We could think of the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, which is a uh, type of the Lord Jesus Christ and teaches something about that. But the uh, sacrificial animals at the Day of Atonement are goats and not sheep. We might think of various other sacrifices that involve uh, bulls and they involve goats, they involve uh, birds at times. But what John is saying here focuses on this idea of a lamb. So where does that idea of a lamb come from? We can go back to other sacrifices in the Old Testament, but I think in terms of a Jewish audience, the most significant 
reference to a lamb is at the Passover. So let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, a passage, an episode that is not unfamiliar to us, as I allude to this every time we celebrate the Lord's table. But I thought it would be important for us to stop and just go back and reread the scriptures on this and read the episode. I don't think anything beats just reading the reading the scripture. This is at the time of the tenth plague. The Israelites have been enslaved for over 400 years in Egypt, and now God, true to his promise to Abraham, is going to free them and has sent a deliverer, Moses. And Moses, as the deliverer, is also a type of Christ. That is, the word type, it's an antiquated word, but it's a word that is embedded in theology, is a word from uh, the Greek tupos, which means an example. It's the idea of a uh, of a, something that is depicts some aspect of something future, in especially in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there are various different things that are used in the Old Testament to picture these things, and people are used that way, such as Moses, and. Things are used that way, such as the, uh, for example, the Ark of the Covenant, and animals are used this way in terms of the sacrifices. So we read in verse 1, Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, the uh, tenth plague has been announced, that God would take the life of the firstborn throughout Egypt, the firstborn in every family, and the firstborn of their herds and flocks. But there would be one way to survive, and that is this provision of a blood sacrifice that is the Passover lamb. So the Lord instructs Moses and Aaron, verse 2, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year. And speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. So they are going to take a lamb on the tenth of the month, and this lamb has to be inspected. It has to be evaluated. It has to fit certain criteria. Not just any lamb will do. It has to be a lamb that is without spot or blemish. And that is to depict the fact that the Savior has to be without sin. And so this lamb that is without spot or blemish is evaluated. Now, this is fulfilled literally in a time frame when Jesus enters into Jerusalem on the 10th of Nisan, and he is, as it were, evaluated, tested by the uh, religious leaders as they each group comes and they ask him various questions and they are opposed to him. And we see how he responds to each of those uh, interrogations. And as a result of that, we see that he demonstrates who he is, that he is the the qualified Savior. He doesn't lose his temper. He doesn't get... Uh, angry at them in terms of uh, of a sin. There's no personal sin committed. And in terms of his whole life, there's no personal sin. He is qualified to go to the cross. So he, uh, so the picture, the type of this is this lamb that is evaluated 
between the 10th and the 14th of Nisan. And then when they have tested this lamb, evaluated it, make sure that it uh, fits the criteria, and I just think about that. At this particular time, because God the Father knew what was going to happen, you have about 3 million Jews. And so let's say there's 10 in every family. So you've got about 300,000 lambs that are going to be required. That's a lot of lambs. God had provided not just 300,000 lambs, but 300,000 lambs who are without spot or blemish so that there would be the right number at that time. And nobody was going to say, well, we ran out of qualified lambs. That's a fascinating way to think about God providing for everyone a perfect salvation. And so they take the lamb on the 14th. The lamb's described in verses 5 as a lamb that is a year old. So that must indicate, I'm just thinking about the size of the flocks that they had to have uh, so many that were a year old as well. That's a tremendous provision, supernatural provision of God. Verse 6, you keep it until the 14th day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Think about the logistics of that. There are going to be 300,000 lambs that are all sacrificed at the same time. Then they are to take the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel, that's the upper cross piece on the doorframe, on which they eat it. Now, if you think about that, the blood on each side and at the top, if you connect the dots, you have the form of a cross. Then they were to roast it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. What's the significance of eating? There are two things that we should emphasize with eating. First of all, anyone can do it. It is available to anyone. And when you eat something, you are taking it and you are making it a part of yourself. It is a picture that is used throughout Scripture of uh, belief, of, tr- of the act of trusting, because when we trust Christ, we are accepting him as our Savior, so that this idea of accepting Christ or believing is is another way of talking about believing in him, which is depicted through eating. We'll see that in the third example I'm going to this morning. So they are going to eat. The other thing that it emphasizes is fellowship, because in the ancient Near East, as it is today, sitting down at a meal together is a picture of, of fellowship, that picture of of community that is there and that relationship among those who are eating. And so that is what is depicted here because this is the way in which we enter into eternal fellowship with God is by accepting the salvation of uh, work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So the prescriptions are given here, uh, not to eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but roasted with fire. That's a picture of judgment. Okay, so Jesus is going to be judged on the cross. 
It couldn't die any other way. And then in verse uh, 10, you shall not leave any of it over until morning. Whatever is left until morning, you shall burn with fire. Then you shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet. And that has to do with the logistics at that time because they're getting ready to be released to leave. Later on, after this initial Passover, they will eat lying down, which indicates that that they rest in that pr- that provision. So this is the image that would come to a Jew when John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That word for taking away is a word that that would be parallel or synonymous with this redemption as they are released from Egypt. They are going to be taken away from that slavery in Egypt just as when we trust in Christ we are taken away from that slavery to sin. We are set free. So that is the first example of a lamb. The second example is from the passage we read before we began in Isaiah uh, chapter 53. As we turn there, we're going to look at specifically at verse 7. Now, one of the things that we see as we read through Isaiah 53, and sometimes sometime as you read through it, you should circle all the different things in the passage that talk about substitution. We'll be talking about that uh, next time in terms of continuing the significance of the cross because it is substitutionary. And so I just want to begin in verse 6 and read through verse 8 looking at this context. In verse 6, we have a reference to sheep again, but it refers to all of us and that we are like lost sheep. All of us like sheep have gone astray. The all of us is a universal term indicating every human being. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That's the picture of substitution. In a sacrifice... When you are bringing a sacrifice as a burnt offering or as a guilt offering, trespass offering, then the one who brings the sacrifices puts their hand on the sacrificial animal, and it is a picture of their sins being transferred to that animal. And then the animal is killed for their sins. It is a perfect picture of substitution. So the iniquity of us all will fall on him. That is, again, a universal term. All of us means everyone without exception. In the beginning phrase, at the end, the iniquity of us all, it's the same phrase. It's universal. It refers to every single human being. This is one of the great passages for refuting the idea of a limited atonement that Christ died only for the elect. Then we look at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. So this is where we see this imagery again, where the Messiah, the work of the Messiah, is compared to that of a lamb, like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. 
And then verse 8 goes on to say that he was judged. He's taken from prison for judgment. And who will declare his generation? He's cut off from the land of the living and for the... um, For the transgressions of my people. Again, that idea for the transgressions is the idea of substitution. For the transgression of my people. We'll come back and talk about that next time. The second verse in John that again develops a typology is in John chapter 3 verse 14. Everyone is familiar with John 3.16. We see people who have banners with John's 3.16 on it at, at various sports events, and people will put it on their license plates, but very few people will put John 3.14 on their license plate. But John 3.14 tells us about an Old Testament incident and how that depicts what happens in relation to salvation. John 3.14 says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So that the verse goes on, or the statement goes on, verse 15, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Now, I've always thought this is a verse that really helps us to understand what faith is. There's a lot of discussion that goes on about what faith is. Some people think faith is commitment. Some people think that uh, uh, faith is something that is different from all, all other kinds of faith. But what we see in this illustration is that faith is just trusting in something. It is the something that's trusted in that has the efficacy It's what's trusted in that's significant. It's not the faith as faith that saves you. It's what you believe in. It's the object of your faith. Let's go back and look at the original episode in Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21 describes an incident of rebellion that takes place among the Israelites as they are going through the wilderness after they have been released from Uh, slavery in Egypt, and they are complaining about uh, their food, and so God is going to bring some judgment on them. In verse 4 we read, Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. So they're cursing God. They're cursing Moses. They're tired of traveling and walking. And they want to go back to Egypt. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? This is always the trend of human beings. They want somebody to provide everything for them. And they would rather be in slavery than really live on the basis of individual freedom. And that was self-destructive for this generation. They complain that there's no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. God has provided manna for them, and they are angry with God for his provision and gives them everything that they need. So God judges them. Verse 6, So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Now, a lot of discussion about what kind of serpents they were, 
or whether the fiery there has to do with the serpents being fiery or whether it is that the venomous bite burned and so that is describing the result of the bite. Those are all issues to be studied at another time. The fact is that many people died. This is a picture of spiritual death. This is a picture of a problem sin, and God is going to provide the solution. So the people come to Moses and say, We've sinned because we've spoken against the Lord, and you intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. So Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent. So he is going to make a bronze serpent that depicts this viper, and put it on a pole and raise it up high enough so everyone can see it. Everyone in the camp. So again, it is a universal solution. It's not a limited solution. It's not God choosing some to be delivered and that that those are the only ones who can look at the serpent. Make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, doesn't have to do anything. That looking at it is faith. They look at it because God said, look at it and you'll be healed, and they're believing that to be true. They're simply assenting to the fact that that is true. That's what assent means. They're assenting to the right thing. They're agreeing that, that well, this is true, and if I do it, it will. I will be delivered. And so... This is exactly what takes place. It shall come about when everyone who's bitten, when he looks at it. It's simple. There's no commitment. There's no inviting uh, the bronze serpent into their life. There's no inviting the bronze servant into their heart. There's none of this silliness that often accompanies the way the gospel is explained today. It is simply faith. You know, the only biblically acceptable terms are belief and accepting or receiving Jesus as your Savior. Not receive, it doesn't say receive Jesus into your life. That is a result. Now, do I think that people who invite Jesus into their heart or invite Jesus into their life are, are not saved? No. I think that they are believing in him. They're just being told the wrong terminology to use. That doesn't excuse sloppiness in gospel presentations because a person doesn't get saved because they pray a prayer. A person gets saved because they believe Jesus died for their sins. What they do subsequent to that in terms of praying a prayer or inviting Jesus into their life or whatever is something that only reflects something that happened internally. Salvation is when we believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and when we understand the gospel and we believe it, that's a mental act. It's an act of our soul. It's a decision, and at that instant, we're saved. We don't ever, you know, saying something would always be subsequent to an act that has occurred in our mind. And it is that act of belief, of trust, believing, yes, that is true, Jesus died for my sins. Now, some people say, well, ascending to the truth just doesn't sound right. But see, what they get confused about is that often people assent to the wrong truth, and they're not saved. I can say, I, I agree that the Bible teaches 
that Jesus died for my sins. Am I saved? No. I believe that Charles Darwin taught that man evolved from uh, simple forms to complex forms, from amoeba to man. But I don't believe in evolution. I believe that's what Darwin said, but that doesn't mean I believe what Darwin said. See, a lot of people think, oh, I believe that's what the Bible teaches, but that doesn't mean that they believe what the Bible teaches. See, you have to believe in the right proposition, and the right proposition is Jesus died for my sins, and you put your name in there. And you believe that, you, uh, you are agreeing that that's true. An illustration of assenting in something like this is when you're doing your income tax. I quit doing this years ago because I don't like numbers. But at one time, I did do that. I would fill out the form, put in all of the numbers, and I would double and triple and quadruple check it. And when I agreed that my computations were accurate, I assented to the truth of that conclusion. I quit working on it. I stopped. I rested in it. See, that's what faith is. You agree that it is true, and then you just you just stop. You, you're, you're it. You're done. You have faith in that computation. And so that is what happens here in this picture. And it is picked up in John 3 to indicate what is said then in John 3.16, that it is belief in Christ alone that changes us from those who are perishing to those who have eternal life. And then when we come to John 3.18, it is reinforced once again. In John 3.18, we read, He who believes in him is not condemned. It's not believe in anything. It is simply believe. He who believes in him on him is not condemned. He who believeth not is condemned already. You're born in condemnation. You're still there. He who believeth not is condemned already. Why? Because he has committed sins. Doesn't say that, does it? Because he's committed certain sins. Doesn't say that either. Why? Because they were tra- they, that transaction occurred at the cross and they're wiped out, they're paid for. So the issue isn't what sins they've committed. The issue is whether they believe on him. And so John 3.18 ends, he is condemned or judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. See, that is the salvific proposition. Do you believe in the name of the Jesus who died on the cross for your sins or not? That's it. If you agree that that is true, you assent to it, you say, yes, that's true in your heart. God knows what you're thinking in your mind. And if you believe it in your mind, then you're saved. If not, then you're not saved. You're still condemned. So that is the second example. The third example is in John 6.51, where Jesus said, I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. So he is comparing that to the manna that was provided by God to uh, nourish and sustain the Israelites as they are going through the wilderness. I am the living bread which comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of the bread, he will live forever. Now, what does eating describe? Eating is another way of illustrating faith, of accepting something, 
of taking it into yourself. Anyone can eat. Anyone can believe. It is a provision that God has given in salvation. And so Jesus then describes what this bread is. We think about it in reference to the Lord's table and the matzah. Uh, The bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world, talking about his death on the cross. Next time we'll come back and we will continue to study the implications and the significance of Christ's death as we understand what was accomplished and what was not accomplished. Why Christ's death pays the penalty for sin, but that doesn't save us apart from our own decision to trust in him for salvation. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study this morning and to reflect upon the gospel, reflect upon what Christ did on the cross, to think about how that was a fulfillment of 4,000 years of prophecy going back to the garden, how you planned everything. Every dimension of that death was significant because it was designed to solve the world's greatest problems and our greatest problem. Father, we pray that if anyone listening to this lesson or here today has never trusted Christ as Savior, that they would have a clear understanding of what you have provided, that Jesus, the perfect God-man who entered into human history, lived a life that was sinless, qualified him to go to the cross, that on the cross he could pay for our sins, so that the issue now is not what we've done, the issue is what Christ did, and whether we trust him and him alone or whether we're trusting in something else. Paul made it very clear to the Philippian jailer that all that was necessary was faith. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we pray for each of us who are saved that we might realize that this is only the beginning, it's not the end, and that beginning is a time of spiritual growth, that once we are born again, we must be nourished, we must grow, we must mature as believers, that we can experience that abundant life that our Lord has promised us. And Father, we pray that we would all be challenged by what we study today in Christ's name. Amen.